Before we get started on our sitting this morning, I want to say a few things about Dharma practice as the work that reconnects. Um, First, a couple of announcements. Please check the bulletin board just to the right of the door as you go out. Check for notes for your uh, that the teachers or staff has left for you. And also, please keep the noble silence. That is a request from all of us to all of us. <laughs> uh, it really helps uh, to keep the energy sort of together and moving. And it's very sweet. So, thank you. So, I want to say a few words about this practice as a practice of reconnecting and really a a practice of identity. The number one spiritual question really is, who am I? In almost all traditions, you find that that is an underlying theme because how we come to understand ourselves in the scheme of things determines how we feel about our lives and how we treat the environment, how we treat other, other people, other beings. Depends on how we understand ourselves. Who am I? So the Hopi say, you have to ask three questions. Where did I come from? Where am I going? Who am I? Uh, the Hindu Advaita tradition, they would say, who is it that's asking this question, who am I? They'd keep pulling the rug out from under you, you know, throwing you into doubt. Socrates, of course, said, know thyself. In Zen, they have some colorful ways of answering, asking the question, um, who is it that's dragging this corpse around? <laughs> or who is it that goes in and out of the six sense doors? In and out of the what? The six sense doors. Mm-hmm. Who is it that is seeing? Who is it that is hearing? The Buddha said, true happiness can be found only by eliminating the false conceit of I or self. Unfortunately, (laughs) we're all born with a case of mistaken identity. (laughs) And we basically go through our lives believing we're in here and the world is out there, and hardly ever recognizing that the world is in here, that we are not just acting on the world, the world is acting through us. We, we rarely recognize that, and those are not just kind of sweet metaphors. Those are our new story. I mean, the, the story of, of modern science telling us how intimately interconnected we are with all things. It's interesting to note that the sense of self that self has its own history, and that the sense of self was not always the way it is today. That uh, the tight clothing of 
individuality was not always like this. Uh, if you'd have asked a desert nomad or serf in Europe, say, you know, 500 years ago, what do you want to do with your life? They wouldn't know what you're talking about. You don't sort of create yourself the way we think we do. Um, Rollo May, the great mythologist and psychologist of uh, the last century, one of the greats, said, Americans cling to the myth of individualism as though it were the only normal way to live, unaware that it was unknown in Middle Ages and would have been considered psychotic in classical Greece. <laughs> Evidence, you know, from the early Greek literature, uh, there's been analysis of it. There was, there was some evidence that the early Greeks thought that all the voices in their heads were the voices of the gods. That it weren't, they weren't their thoughts, they were the gods' thoughts. Now we, of course, when we think that all the thoughts in our head are ours, which is its own form of schizophrenia, you know. <laughs> Here in the land of personalized license plates. Um, <laughs> we, we've sort of lost this, this sense of what the anthropologists called uh, participation mystique, a sense of belonging to a, uh, a tribe, uh, belonging to nature, belonging to the world. That we really feel ourselves isolated, and it's very suffocating, and it's also very damaging, this culture of narcissism. The Buddha's great breakthrough was in seeing through this membrane of self. I mean, self is not bad. I don't want to, uh, you know, really... Uh, somehow demonize this concept or this feeling of, uh, of a separate self. Um, every living being has a membrane around it and a sense of its own integrity and extends this membrane when there's a single-celled being will extend this membrane when there's food or something pleasant and retract it when there's some threat or so every living being has this sense of self. The Buddha's breakthrough was that he saw through the membrane and saw the interconnectedness, the co-arising of this being with all beings, with all things. And that was, that was the liberation. And he laid out the path for all of us to do this, to really question who we are. He said, develop this quality of mindfulness. This, I call it the, the opposable thumb of consciousness. It's a way to reach out and take a hold of reality in a totally different way. Mindfulness is actually a kind of like a scientific method because you are taking this part of our mind that we all have uh, that can simply observe that can simply be outside of the drama and observe the drama of self and perhaps have some freedom to make some choices about how we want to behave and how we want to develop. 
Um, the Buddha said, develop this quality of mindfulness and be as objective as you can about yourself as the subject. And go and begin to explore and feel this breath and explore this body and the sensations in the body and the moods that come through you and the thoughts that come through you. And ask yourself, this is, he was continually saying, ask yourself, this phenomena, this construct, what, what is its origin? What is its cause? Who owns it? And you will begin to see that uh, there's nobody behind all of these experiences, that they are happening through us. It's really a, a profound leap, evolutionary leap, to begin to understand ourselves in this way. Um, When I first started meditating, I focused my attention on the breath, as many of us do. It's a very useful object. It's always there. It's moving. It uh, brings us into the body. It helps us settle the mind. Um, It helps us learn how to concentrate. But after a number of years of focusing on my breath as a concentration object, I also began to experience it as a a sign of life, as a a bit of a shift of my sense of myself. I was a breathing being. I was one of the alive ones. I sort of said, you are alive, this breath. It wasn't just a place to, to focus my attention. It began to shift my identity from my story from my psychology into my biology, into this being that I am, this breathing being that has a beating heart and a, and a breath. And my breath, and you know, you can, you can experiment with this. Uh, you, well, when you bring your attention to your breath in meditation, you realize it's been going on all the time that you weren't paying attention to it. That you have, it's not, you're not breathing. Descartes should have said, I breathe, therefore I am, actually. Because you can breathe without thinking, but you can't think without breathing. But um, breath is happening. And you begin to feel your connection. I mean, your breath is, right now you're exchanging vital nutrients with the plant kingdom out there. And the whole earth is breathing. You know, every time uh, night comes, uh, the carbon dioxide comes out and the, uh, the oxygen level goes down and then the sun comes out and the plants begin exuding all this oxygen for us. You know, it's like the earth breathes. So you feel your breath. And then this body, you begin to experience this body. One of my first teachers, uh, S.N. Goenka, taught us what's called the body scan, where you bring your mind down through your body over and over again, feeling all the sensations. Feeling It's a meditation really on sensations in the body. And pretty soon you begin to realize the body's not a thing, it's a process. It's uh, 
there is continual motion and aliveness in the body. And you begin to realize the body has a life of its own as well. I mean, we, we kind of assume that we own the body. We're leading it around, but the body gets tired when it wants to and hungry when it wants to and horny when it wants to. And, you know, we're just kind of like along for the ride. <laughs> it's a big shift in, in our sense of self. You know, it's a big shift. But there's a way in which it relates us to other beings. We aren't just minds. You know, uh, we aren't just thinking minds. Uh, we're, we're part of all of the life of this planet. And science is giving us this, you know, incredible new story. Uh, I mean, the, the genetic scientists are showing us how we're all related cell-related, not blood maybe, but cell-related, DNA-related. We, uh, we share, I don't know if you know this, you share about 99.999% of your DNA with the person sitting next to you. All of our differences, IQ and features, and are just a thin coat of paint over the basic human design. Over 98% of our DNA with apes, as you probably know, and but nearly 90% with mice we share our DNA. That's because most of the information and instructions in our DNA are information for building and maintaining a basic mammal. It takes a lot of information to build a nervous system and a, you know, a muscular system and a skeleton. and It's a phenomenal, phenomenal amount of information. Do you know if your DNA was stretched out end to end? It would go around the planet several million times. Inside of every one of your hundred trillion cells, which is a number two impossible to imagine, there is two yards of DNA inside every one of your cells. If you stretched it all out, you can do the math. I, I can't, but somebody can do the math. <laughs> Millions of times it would go around, around the earth. But related, I mean, we should have known for forever, for a long time. Each of us starts life as a single cell, the shape of an egg. Once that egg is fertilized, the DNA guides it through the history of all life on earth, in, inside the womb of a human, uh, a human being, uh, the cell grows into a multi-celled sphere, a tubular worm-like body, grows rudimentary fins, gills, webbed fingers, toes, features of reptiles and amphibians. As we cycle through the DNA of all the life that ever lived on this planet, even after we start to grow arms and legs, we uh, resemble the embryos of pigs and rabbits. And it all happens in the warm sea of the womb. And at birth, we repeat the exodus from the ocean and land in the world. And if you're at all um, questioning that we are related to other beings, look at the floor plan of all the other beings, even the insects. You got a head on one end, a tailpipe on the other, uh, elongated body, 
uh, some kind of limbs to, uh, to move you at particular places. Nature had one great design and said, let's just keep using this and we'll do some variations, but this is, this is your basic floor plan. And, uh, and we get, you know, we, we somehow have come to this sense that we create ourselves, that we give birth to ourselves uh, when really we are, uh, we are part of this great stream. Um, I like to read one more thing about your body. Uh, heads. We're so identified with our heads, right? Because that's what we look at when you look in the mirror. And, it's, and that's where we think we live, right? That's where the little guide is, you know, making the, de- the decider lives up there. Um, the first heads were these extra clumps of cells that grew up around the mouth of these jelly-like, jellyfish-like uh, marine creatures so that the mouth could manipulate, the little cells made the mouth able to manipulate itself better to suck in the food. And, and then the senses started to grow up around the mouth as well because you want to see where the food is and see who wants to make you food. And uh, so basically it's about eating it's about the the head is all about survival, um, and uh, of course we like to groom it and stuff. But it's uh, I like to read this because I think this is such an important story, this story of evolution, and we're just starting to understand it. It's just starting to be the specifics are starting to be revealed to us, and we haven't yet really got it. We haven't really felt our way into this story because when we do, I think this, this is the guiding mythology that we need for, for the coming century or two that really will reacquaint us with our, our true nature, which is one with all things. So I would like to read this last paragraph from uh, The Origin of Species which is uh, Darwin's sort of final statement before the storm that he caused. He said that uh, he felt like when he went to publish in his secret notebook, he wrote that uh, when he was contemplating publishing this story, that uh, it felt like murder, like he was going to be committing murder. Mortal wound to Human pride, I think it's what it was. So this is uh, the last paragraph. There is a simple grandeur in this view of life, with its powers of growth, assimilation, and reproduction, being originally breathed into matter under one or a few forms. And while this, our planet has gone circling on, according to fixed laws, and land and water in a cycle of changes have gone on replacing each other, So that from so simple an origin, through the process of gradual selection of infinitesimal changes, endless forms, most beautiful and wonderful, have been evolved.
gradual selection of infinitesimal changes has produced all these forms, wondrous, beautiful forms. So uh, just a couple more words about uh, the process of of sitting in meditation and uh, one of the foundations of mindfulness is mind states, moods, you know, uh, the, the common emotions that we feel. And if you begin to pay attention to those in meditation and begin to develop a sense of being aware of emotions as sort of taking over your being without your choosing them, that they are actually part of the repertoire we're given. And uh, the Buddha used to always say, you know, if I owned this, if I owned this body, I could make it be like this. And you can imagine him twisting, or, or I could make it be like that, something different. If I really owned these emotions, I'd be happy all the time, wouldn't I? If you really owned, if you were really in charge of them, And as you begin to sit in meditation and really begin to examine yourself and question, uh, whose is this? Who, what is its origin uh, about your breath and your, and your sensations of pleasure, pleasant or unpleasant and your emotions and, and your thoughts? Where do they come from? I mean, you know, so you sit down here, we tell, I tell you, you know, just Pay attention to your breath and the sensations created by your breath. Immediately you're off, you know, your mind is thinking, and who's thinking? You didn't decide to do it, did you? Or were you, you know, disobeying my orders? (laughs) And after a while you realize you can just sit here and not intentionally do anything, and everything will happen. Thoughts will happen, moods will come and go, pleasant and unpleasant will happen. And you will begin to get this sense that life is living through you, that you are part of it all. And there comes a great uh, sense of relief. Partly you realize you're not your fault. And also you begin to develop this ability to maybe override some of what is inherited, to intervene in the karma, in, the, in this process that's, you know, you feel some pain, I'm going to move. Okay, so you don't move for a moment. There's pain. That's part of being alive. I can override that particular instinct, that reactive, that reactive mind. And I can begin to have more freedom about how I move through the world and what I do and my behavior. Anyway, and I want to say more about thinking, but I'll leave it for another time. uh, Because thinking is a really interesting thing that we humans do. And uh, we pretty much have an exclusive on it. And uh, it's, it's... 
it can be a real difficult uh, uh, what we call a hindrance in 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 Buddhist uh, literature and Buddhist teachings. I, uh, something that is hard to overcome uh, your relationship to your own thinking and it can prevent you from sitting in meditation because you think you're failing all the time. Anyway, we'll get it, we'll, I'll do another uh, little talk about thinking itself and say some more. But let's uh, go into sitting meditation now. And we'll do a little bit of uh, exploration of who's sitting here and meditating. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.